I'm Robert Scherzer, Clinical Associate Professor at the University of British Columbia, Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences, and Director of the West Coast Glaucoma Center in Vancouver, B.C., and we're talking about glaucoma with my guest, Marcelo Nicolella. In this episode, number 13, for early December 2010, we discuss glaucoma risk factors for development and progression of the disease. Please check the show notes of this podcast for definitions and references related to today's topic. The show notes also include contact information to find me on Twitter, where I'm Rob Schertzer, my glaucoma EMR tech and education blog, wholeloterob.com, and my office website, westcoastglaucoma.com. Welcome, Marcel. Thanks, Rob. So uh, let's, let's talk about glaucoma risk factors today. You presented that here at the meeting. And, um... Okay, yeah. Uh, yes, we, we, we actually had a great session yesterday on risk factors, and uh, um, what I presented was uh, mostly uh, trying to incorporate what, uh, uh, what, uh, what we can do with all this uh, new information that uh, we have in glaucoma that accumulated really over the last uh, 10, 10 years or so. Uh, most of this information is coming from uh, randomized clinical trials, uh, as well as uh, uh, population studies, particularly the ones that uh, look at the incidence of uh, new cases. Okay. I guess we should talk about uh, what we mean by risk factors in terms of risk for getting glaucoma, risk for progressing if you have glaucoma. And yeah, that's like absolutely that. true, yeah. and, uh, and, and, and they might be different. Uh, certainly when we, uh, in, in the more epidemiological uh, literature or way of thinking, if you talk about risk factors, uh, you're really talking about risks of developing a disease uh, as opposed to uh, prognostic factors, which would be uh, related to risks of uh, progressing uh, or, or, or reaching an end point once you already have a disease. Uh, uh, we use uh, the term risk factors fairly loosely in the glaucoma literature, and usually when we refer to risk factors, uh, we are talking about either factors to develop the disease or, or, or for progression of the disease. And in, in several instances, they, 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 they are the same, but there might be cases where they, they might not be the same. Right, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a moment, but also one thing we want to focus on uh, by the end of this conversation is um, what, we, what we would do about it. So I, there's, I guess, little point in identifying certain risk factors if there's not something that's going to change our management of the patient. Uh, yep, so. yep, you're absolutely right. And, uh, uh, and, and unfortunately, in, in most risk factors that we know in glaucoma are non-modifiable risk factors such as age, uh, Race, uh, there's family history. There, there's nothing you can do about uh, about those things, um, uh, and the only really known um, modifiable risk factors that we have in glaucoma is really intraocular pressure. Uh, but we know a lot more about the effect of intraocular pressure in glaucoma onset uh, as well as glaucoma progression than we knew uh, 10, 15 years ago. Another point that might be interesting as well is even uh, with the non-modifiable risk factors, uh, it would be interesting to know if uh, pressure reduction, once you have that risk factor, make, make a difference in your outcome, even though you can't modify that particular risk factor. But if you know that maybe treating more aggressively, once you have that set of factors uh, would, would uh, change your outcome, that might be also very useful information. We are just really starting to get some, 
some data on that. Yes. So if we, uh, you know, if we if we look at uh, the information that was that was really collected over the the, the last decade or so. Uh, a lot of that we already knew or we thought we knew, but uh, but uh, but certainly all the randomized trials as well as population studies have really uh, defined for us that intraocular pressure is the by far the most important risk factor for glaucoma. Uh, even when you're dealing with patients with uh, so-called normal tension glaucoma, uh, the ones that have higher pressures in that group uh, tend to do a little worse. Um, and even and though if on any patient, if you're screening them, 50% of the time they won't have a high pressure. So it's a bit of a challenge, even though that's our most uh, clearly identified modifiable risk factor. Absolutely, and that, that's a great point. It's, uh, it's really a, it, it's almost a, uh, you know, a, a difficult thing to put in your mind that um, you know, if you go out screening, um, at least 50%, in some studies even 60% of patients have a, uh, what is considered normal pressure below 21. In, uh, in one screening uh, measurement, maybe if you measure the pressure several other times, the pressure would, would, would maybe go a little higher than that. But uh, uh, but but certainly, uh, intraocular pressure is the you know is the one risk factor even in those with uh, with low pressure. Uh, so let's take an approach of patients coming in to see a general ophthalmologist or optometrist. Um, how should they be screened? What risk factors are being looked for as part of a screen? Well, uh, uh, obviously, intraocular pressure is one. Uh, the, the the other ones that uh, we we already knew as well, uh, or we, we've been known for a long time, is you know, uh, uh, older age. The older you are, more likely to to, to, to develop glaucoma or have glaucoma. Uh, race, uh, black race, uh, and there's maybe now some evidence that the Latinos, at least the Latinos that live in the U.S., which come mostly from a Mexican uh, background, uh, seem to have a very high uh, prevalence of glaucoma as well. Right, that's the Los Angeles Latino study. Latino study, right. which really uh, had a, a remarkable um, high prevalence of glaucoma, mm -hmm. uh, mimicking the ones uh, that uh, we see in, in, in black patients from West Africa or black descendants from West Africa, which is, uh, um, you know, by far the, the highest prevalence in glaucoma, in, at least opening glaucoma ever reported. Uh, uh, other risk factors uh, that... Uh, that are important, are, and again, the term is being used very loosely. But uh, things that probably are not really risk factors, by, but 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 suggest that there might be early disease, such as uh, you know suspicious optic disc or presence of an optic disc hemorrhage. Uh, those things are, are, are obviously very important in terms of developing glaucoma later right. on. That, that's one of my pet peeves with the oats the ocular hypertension study where increased vertical cup to disc ratio was a risk factor. To me, that was likely uh, already onset of disease. Absolutely. Uh, the same in that study with uh, optic disc hemorrhage is also a risk right. factor, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and in follow-up. And it's, it's obviously a, a very, uh, you know, it's a very loose, uh, uh, you know, uh, use of the term risk factor, but because probably is, a, is, is, is early onset of disease. The same as uh, increased uh, PSD values uh, on the visual field. Uh, uh, another, I think, very important risk factor that uh, uh, that we learned a lot more about it recently is the presence of pseudoexfoliation. We've mm -hmm. uh, we've all in, always 
knew that serial exfoliation is strongly associated with glaucoma, uh, but uh, new information, particularly coming from the EMGT, suggests that uh, you know the risk of progression of glaucoma and serial exfoliation is extremely high, even when they accounted for uh, intraocular pressure uh, levels. So it appears right. that. Uh, uh, there might be something else in, in, in serial exfoliation apart from the fact that they have higher pressures than open-air glaucoma that we know. Right. I found uh, that very, very interesting because normally I think of the main problem with pseudo exfoliation being that you never know what their pressure will be from one visit to the next. They could come in with their pressure of 50, but to find that it's a pressure-independent thing, just having pseudo exfoliation increases the yeah. risk of progression. Yeah, that, that, that's, that, that is a very interesting finding. And, uh, uh, I mean, one caveat uh, is, of course, that they haven't done diurnal tension curve in those patients. I mean, they were seen very uh, frequently every three months. But it's possible that their pressures are really fluctuating a lot during the day, and that uh, wasn't measured. Right. Um, but we also have to remember that in the inclusion criteria for that particular study, they, they excluded people with very high pressure. So they really excluded the pseudo exfoliations with pressures above 32, I think it was the upper limit. Um, so you're really leading, we, we are really, sorry, dealing with a group of uh, pseudo exfoliation that have uh, pressures in the, in, the, in, the, in the slightly high upper uh, end, uh, and, and, and they did uh, significantly worse than, than the primary opening of glaucomas with similar levels of intraocular pressure, who actually did significantly worse than the so-called normal tension glaucoma in that study. Right. Yeah. And it's a good thing they did exclude patients with there was really high pressures because the control group was non-treated. I'm sorry. Patients. Yes, yes, yes. That's, that's, they that's precisely the reason why they, they, they had to, yes. Uh, uh, so other, uh, uh, other risk factors that are less uh, clear or there, there, there's a lot... Uh, sorry, yeah, but, uh, one other very important risk factor that became apparent uh, in, uh, in, in the last few years and, uh, and, and extremely important... Uh, in onset of the disease, uh, as well as likely progression of the disease, is uh, low perfusion pressure or mm -hmm. low blood pressure, if we will. Um, perfusion pressure is really calculated by, by brachial blood pressure, less intraocular pressure. Uh, but several, even, you know, the, the, the first study that I remember that the Showed this relationship between low perfusion pressure and glaucoma was the uh, was the Baltimore Eye Survey, uh, but uh, that was uh, confirmed very clear in the Barbados study now, as well as the early manifest glaucoma trial. That mm -hmm. uh, uh, low perfusion pressure is uh, related to glaucoma development as well as glaucoma progression. Again, there might be so that's possibly a modifiable risk factor. Possibly, well. yes, yeah. We have to fight with the cardiologists, though, because uh, they like low blood pressure, and we, right. we apparently don't. So that's, uh, that's something that, uh, you know, uh, if, if you talk to your cardiologist colleagues about those findings, they, they really try to dismiss them because right. <laughs> the cardiologist literature has been pushing more and more for lower levels of uh, blood Just pressure. Just like we are for the eye pressure. Exactly. So yeah. sim similar battle. But at least there, there's some flexibility because we could... Mm -hmm propose that if it's a patient that's on uh, antihypertensives for their blood pressure, that the dosage could be at a different time of day, so they're, they're uh, not getting their maximal drop in blood pressure when they're sleeping, which is when we're assuming most of the problems occurring with the glaucoma. With glaucoma, yeah. yeah. So we have our patient here. They've 
all those factors are taken into account. Uh, so where do we go from there in terms of how we use these risk factors in a practical basis? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, uh, I, I think, uh, I mean, we, we still have to obviously look at every patient individually, and, and, but, but you, you, at least we know more what, uh, what a priori uh, would be the risk of that individual from either developing glaucoma or, or, or showing significant progression. So if you have somebody in front of you that comes with... Um, oh, did we mention pachymetry, corneal thickness, in that we mix? Forgot. I guess that's another one to, to add to the list. Yeah, obviously, I don't have a list here in front of right. me, but uh, well, well, well said. Uh, pachymetry is another risk factor that really we, 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 we didn't, I mean, we didn't have it until OATS came along, and, uh, and there's been now confirmation from population studies as well that bachymetry uh, is um, uh, related to, certainly related to the progression from ocular hypertension to um, primary opening of glaucoma, uh, and quite likely related to the uh, development of glaucoma, even if you're not dealing with a strictly ocular hypertensive population. That, uh, that comes from, from the Barbados um, uh, study. Uh, it is uh, uh, so that it, uh, so, are, so are all these uh, population studies with uh, I guess non-white uh, races? Did they all are? Do those people all have thinner corneas as well? I mean, that is the case for the African the African population. population. I think it's the case for the Mexican population too. Also, the Mexican population, yeah, yeah, yeah the Latinos' uh, average uh, central corneal thickness uh, was, uh, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, was uh, in between the average corneal thickness for blacks and whites, uh, right. but closer to the, to the to the one you see in the black population. So, and still, uh, for our audience to point out that it, it, that is also pressure independent uh, as a risk factor. It's it's not a correction factor for their intraocular pressure. Just the coronal thickness alone is an independent risk factor. Yeah, that yeah. seems that seems to be the evidence. Uh, uh, and, uh, and and we really don't understand uh, why that would be, if it's really giving us any indication of other, you know, elastic uh, properties of the of the whole eyeball wall that might be related to to to, to, to glaucoma, you know, uh, amount of uh, uh, you know uh, the way that the laminar cribrosa might resist, but might 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 deal with the stress. So we really don't know what the what the reason is for that. Uh, certainly, if you were asking me earlier, I mean, what do we do once we have the patient in front of us? And uh, uh, as I mentioned, I think we know a lot more. Uh, first of all, I think we would uh, do a corner pachymetry, which we wouldn't be doing uh, some, some time ago. Uh, we, we certainly would pay a lot of attention to, the, to whether the patient has an optic disc hemorrhage uh, in, or not, because that uh, confers a very high risk of uh, you know, converting to glaucoma or, uh, or progressing uh, to a, a more significant stage of the disease. Uh, and we, and uh, we are going to you know, investigate the, the, the non-modifiable risk factors that might be important. Certainly, you know, look, for, look, look, you know, look for family history. I mean, family history 
to me is particularly important if you have some information of what what what, what kind of glaucoma their relatives had. Right. Uh, you know, if they uh, a lot of if patients, they all had onset less than forty years of age, then that. That's a big red flag. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Like and they, if they required surgery, obviously if they went blind. Uh, but, it, but we see in clinic as well, the, the, the other side of the coin, a lot of people tell me, oh, yes, my, my, my you know, parents or siblings have glaucoma. Uh, and then when you start asking about it, you really feel that probably they, you know, they might have had a very mild glaucoma or ocular hypertension and right. they were treated. And, and, that, and, th- and, and that, to me, probably, you know, is not a significant risk factor for that particular individual. So it's important to try to really understand a little bit what this uh, family history actually is. Uh, uh, once you, uh, I mean, one thing that I particularly haven't uh, incorporated in my practice, but maybe we should, is measuring blood pressure in every patient mm-hmm. coming to the office. I don't know if you do that, Robert. Uh, the only patients who I measure blood pressure on, I actually send for a diurnal blood pressure measurement if they seem to be progressing and their eye pressures are normal or low. Yeah. Then they've got a 24-hour blood pressure monitoring and see if that mean diastolic pressure is dropping to like 40 or less when they're sleeping. Yeah. But otherwise I don't. Yeah, that's something I do as well. But, uh, but, uh, but you know, maybe we should be, you know, that's, that, that would be an easy thing to do, incorporate in the practice, just get, get the blood pressure measurement uh, early on and, uh, you know, calculate your perfusion pressure. I don't think we'll do much with that information from the beginning, but... Uh, but it might help us understand why some people seem to be, you know, developing glaucoma faster or showing some different behavior of the disease. Uh, it seems to me another factor we haven't mentioned is uh, is, is gender, and, and I think that's an interesting one because uh, the, the results are a bit controversial. If you look mm-hmm. at uh, a variety of different studies, uh, population studies, very well done, uh, it tends to suggest that there's a slightly higher prevalence of glaucoma in males than females, and if you do a meta-analysis, that's, that's, that's what comes out. Uh, it turns out that intraocular pressure is also slightly higher in males than females if you do a meta-analysis uh, of all those population surveys. Uh, but whether, uh, but in the normal attention glaucoma study, there was uh, females who were at higher risk than males for progressing. For exactly. Progressing. Yeah. Right. So that and that's interesting. If you look at the, uh, if you look now at the, at the, you know, at the randomized clinical trials that uh, that looked at gender or at least reported on gender factors. Um, the normal tension glaucoma study clearly showed that uh, females were more likely to progress. Uh, an interesting, the Canadian glaucoma study, which was uh, recently published uh, a year ago, um, uh, and, and by the way, that study didn't have an untreated arm like the normal tension glaucoma study, right. but that also showed that uh, uh, females were um, more likely to progress. Uh, in that Canadian glaucoma study, there was a large proportion of patients that uh, would fit this normal tension category of uh, glaucoma. I mean, there's a large proportion of patients that didn't have a history of elevated intraocular pressures. Uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, the early manifest glaucoma trial, which was basically done in Sweden, there might be a difference uh, in, uh, in, in, in racial background, uh, uh, did not show any gender uh, prevalence for pro- uh, preference for progression. So I think the data is still controversial, but if I have uh, a 
patient with glaucoma with relatively normal pressures, uh, I tend to look at them slightly different if, if it's a female patient uh, as opposed to a male patient, and particularly if it's a female patient with uh, you know, suggestions of a vasospastic disease, which is, again, another controversial risk factor. But I tend to believe that those people are a little more likely to progress than, 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 than males on the same right. pressure category. Yeah. So now let's say you, you have a patient and they have all these risk factors, let's say thin corneas, pressures, mid-20s, let's say, uh, family history of glaucoma, do you treat them or do you follow them? If their visual field and optic nerve seem to be, optic nerve imaging or... Seem, seem to be normal. normal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, there is, in my view, no right or wrong answer there. And I think that's something that we really need to, you know, discuss with patients if you are, you know, dealing with that, you know, uh, glaucoma suspect category, in this case, somebody with an elevated intraocular pressure. Uh, and it's interesting, when we discuss with patients, at least when I do, uh, I get uh, all kinds of responses. I mean, mm-hmm. I have patients who, you know, are dying to be treated because uh, maybe of the family history, they saw what happened to their parents. Yeah, same here. Yeah. Others that you really want to treat them because their pressures are, you know, more than you would be feel comfortable just watching. And, uh, and they don't want to be treated. And they don't want to be treated. So, and you have to respect what, uh, you know, what patients uh, really, you know, want. And, uh, and certainly, uh, I think there's two, two points to consider there. Once you have your risk factors and you say, you know, I think you have uh, overall, you know, low, medium, or high risk, uh, uh, I would probably be, you know, in most cases, offering treatment for their high-risk group, um, but offering, not pushing treatment. Right. I mean, if they don't want to, that's fine. Uh, but I will certainly offer, um, you know, greater surveillance and closer follow-up for the for the medium to high-risk group, right. uh, and less so for the low-risk group. Right. I tend to basically tell them the number that you could see if you take that OATS study uh, uh, graph and say, okay, it's showing 12% chance of glaucoma in the next five years. See how they feel about that, whether they want to be treated or not. And I explain that we really need to follow you. And I add, if there's a good chance you won't be coming back and uh, regularly for your visits, then it's even more important that you get treated. But then again, they're also more, more likely to not comply to the treatment. So Exactly. Those are the ones that, uh, that will be very hard, the ones that don't want to come back in the first place. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Uh, another, I mean, and I must say, I mean, in several cases, you, you know, in the initial visit, you attribute a medium to low risk to a patient, and it right. turns out that the patient progressed uh, quite significantly and vice versa. Right. So you really, you really can't There's no way to predict tell. how fast someone will progress. There no. really isn't. We have population studies that group as a population together chance of progression, but no way to tell an individual's yeah, risk of progression. Absolutely, yes. Uh, and that is really another uh, probably very important uh, uh, new or new or at least some prove something that we probably all knew from before is that patients with glaucoma behave quite differently. Uh, even if you look at the progressive patients from the normal, t- normal tension data or the early manifest glaucoma trial, 
their rate of progression is extremely variable. So some might actually progress incredibly fast, and those are the ones you, really, you certainly want to catch right. early and treat aggressively. Uh, uh, but others uh, can, you know, progress, but uh, at a such a slow rate that probably won't you know, progress significantly in their lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe one day we'll be able to tell, you know, have customized answers for an individual regarding their risk of progression. And that, that'll be helpful, but we don't, we're certainly not there right now. We are not there right now, and, uh, and, uh, and I think, uh, you know, I, I am not sure we'll be, you know, able to predict uh, with a great, uh, great accuracy what, uh, what's, what's going to happen because it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, I think it's a long stretch. But uh, we, we certainly know more than we used to, and I think we have a better, uh, you know, I think less of a pre-established cookbook approach to glaucoma treatments. I think now we, you know, we, we vary where we want to be depending on all those factors that uh, that we we, we know, uh, and uh, and and I think it's it's a step towards uh, individualized treatment, which I think it's important in glaucoma. Yeah. Great, thanks so much. Thank you, Rob. That's our show for today. Be sure to subscribe via iTunes. Simply search Glaucoma or Scherzer and you'll easily find it. Or subscribe to the RSS feed so you won't miss an episode. Follow me on Twitter to learn more about upcoming episodes and other news about glaucoma, electronic medical records, technology, healthcare, and education. And visit wholeoutofrob.com and westcoastglaucoma.com. If you have a moment to post a review on iTunes, it would be most appreciated. I produce Talking About Glaucoma without any technical or financial support approximately once each month or as time permits. The AAC format is the enhanced version that includes chapter markers and show notes. The MP3 format just has the audio. If listening from your computer on my blog, website, or iTunes, or from an iPod or iPhone, and most other portable devices, the enhanced version is the better choice, so try it first. Once again, on Twitter, I am Rob Scherzer. My blog is wholeoutofrob.com and my website, westcoastglaucoma.com. Look for me everywhere. Drop me a line at podcast at iguy.org. That's I-G-U-Y dot org. And rate the show on iTunes. Please help detect and treat glaucoma by keeping yourself informed.